Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. In 38 years at NASA, my next guest has done lots of things. As an astronaut, he flew three space missions, commanding two of them. He oversaw retirement of the space shuttle, and he rose to associate administrator, the number three ranking person at NASA. Now Bob Cabana is turning in his badge in retirement. He joins me now for a retrospective. Mr. Cabana, good to have you with us. Good to be with you, Tom. Is it safe to say that it's unusual for someone who was an operational type of person, actual astronaut, to rise into the managerial ranks this high at NASA? No, we actually had uh, Admiral Dick Truly rise to be NASA Administrator. And uh, so Charlie Bolden, NASA Administrator, also uh, an astronaut. So we've had a number of uh, astronauts in senior leadership positions at NASA. Could that be one reason that NASA has consistently high scores in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey is because the mission and the idea of what you're actually doing stays high in the ranks of leadership as opposed to management from some sort of an academic standpoint or a business standpoint? I think uh, there's some truth to that. My belief is we're number one on the Employee Viewpoint Survey 11 years in a row because of the mission that we have. We have a meaningful mission that's really important, not just to our nation, but for humanity. But more importantly, I, I believe it's how we treat our people. Uh, we have what we call a NASA family, and we really look after our team and uh, in one another in creating that environment along with the mission, being focused on doing something that's really important where everybody has a role to play, it makes it a little easier to be the best. Sure. And I like to think of people in terms of cohorts sometimes because in the coverage we've been doing and what I've been covering for 30 years, you know, in the federal government, you have 1102s, you know, say contracting officers. That's a cohort or people that are CIOs. Mm -hmm. One of the rarer or more rarefied cohorts is people that have flown in space. And I don't know how many there are of you, probably just a couple of hundred, really, when you add it all up. Is that a cohort from your standpoint? And what kind of cohortness do you have on an ongoing basis for those that did actually fly in space? Actually, it's over 500 now. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when I flew my first flight back in uh, 1990, I, turns out I was the 211th human to, to fly in space. But uh, we do get together uh, through various uh, professional societies as well as uh, we have an annual astronaut reunion that usually takes place down here in Houston uh, in the December timeframe every other year. Uh, the uh, Association of Space Explorers, many of us are members of that. They have an annual Congress uh, where we get together, and that's international, not just uh, U.S. astronaut uh, reunion as it is here in Houston. So, um, yeah, absolutely. We get together, and, you know, I think all the astronauts, uh, they're – they're concerned about the future. They want to see us uh, take care of our planet. They want us to see us continue to explore and expand uh, beyond our home planet. And I've always wondered, you know, someone having flown in space, do you feel that it changed you in some way? I've always been a little disappointed with how reticent like Neil Armstrong was about his experience and being the first man on the moon is, you know, no mean thing. And yet he didn't talk about it much and was reticent about what psychological or perspective changes it might have produced. So my question is, does it change a person to have flown in space, even if not to the moon? Well, I think it, uh, it definitely offers you a different perspective 
on our on our planet. And uh, Neil is one of the finest gentlemen I've ever known. Uh, more than an astronaut, he was a uh, a test pilot, and uh, and he loved being a professor and teaching and sharing his knowledge. But uh, I think from an astronaut's perspective, one of the things that stands out most when you look down on the Earth from low Earth orbit is uh, the fragility of our home planet. When you see the atmosphere, this thin little hazy line that uh, is protecting us from that harsh void of space, it looks kind of fragile. The other thing that you notice is uh, you don't see the boundaries between countries. You just see this as spaceship Earth, this one planet that we all live on that we have to take care of. Uh, and I, I think that's really important. You see, you know, back when the uh, rainforest was being burned off, you could see the, the plumes from all the fires. Uh, it, it's just, it gives you a unique perspective. That overview effect that people talk about is real. I just believe that, you know, we need to learn to work together to take care of our home planet and to uh, ensure that uh, we have a sustainable future. We're speaking with Bob Cabana. He's associate administrator of NASA, retiring at the end of December. And what was your decision process for staying with the agency after retiring from flight? Because people do go on to a lot of other things. You, as you mentioned, a few others have stayed with NASA. What was your motivation? Absolutely. Well, uh, so first off, um, the first 15 years of my 38 years at NASA was an, as an active duty Marine, being selected to be an astronaut, about half the astronaut corps is active duty military, and then NASA reimburses DOD for our pay and allowances. And uh, I was a colonel, an 06 in the Marine Corps, and approaching my 30-year mandatory retirement, uh, being a general officer. And I'd had offers to do a lot of different things. But uh, at that time, I was working as the uh, manager for international operations for the space station program. And I wanted to see that through. I wanted to see us uh, continue to uh, build the International Space Station, see it to, through to completion, to be part of all the amazing things that NASA was doing. And I felt that I could do that best by staying with NASA. So I retired from the Marine Corps and uh, moved into the senior executive service in a leadership position and then, you know, continually got asked to take on positions of greater responsibility. And at the top, we mentioned you were overseeing the retirement of the space shuttle program, and a lot of us can remember it from its inception to its retirement. And what's involved in ending a program? Because there's a lot of programmatic money and administrative process connected with a program like that, but there's also a lot of physical infrastructure. Absolutely. So at the time the shuttle program ended, I was the director of the Kennedy Space Center in uh, Florida and where the space shuttles, of course, were processed and uh, launched and recovered and got ready for flight again. So I wasn't overseeing the entire retirement of the shuttle program that was uh, done via the uh, shuttle program manager. But transitioning the Kennedy Space Center uh, to the future, uh, that was that was huge. So ensuring that we processed, I was there for the remaining 12 shuttle missions when I got there in uh, October of 2008. The last shuttle flew in July of 2011. And I, I uh, had a, an awesome team and we worked extremely hard to make sure that the last mission was flown as safely as could possibly be done. And it was probably one of the cleanest flights that we had. So keeping the team motivated 
to continue to do well, knowing that they weren't going to have a job when the program ended. We went from a workforce of 15,000 down to 7,500 in two years. When the space shuttle Atlantis landed in July 2011, that was on a Thursday. On Friday, the very next day, 2,000 contractors got pink slips and walked out the door, but yet they performed flawlessly right up to the end. That's the kind of dedication of the workforce at KSC. We're speaking with Bob Cabana. He's a 38-year veteran of NASA and a Marine Corps veteran. He flew in space three times and is about to retire as NASA's associate administrator. Before the break, we were talking about retirement of the space shuttle and the sunsetting of that program. It must have caused a lot of regret to see all that engineering talent and experience walk out the door. Was there any way of preserving that knowledge and that learning? So that was a real challenge. And uh, obviously, most of the folks that uh, walked out the door were the technicians that actually did the hands-on labor processing the orbiters. But there was engineering workforce that uh, went also. Uh, We worked with Brevard Workforce. About a third of the folks were eligible to retire. And uh, a third of the folks found jobs elsewhere, uh, many moving outside of, uh, of Florida in order to, uh, to find work. So it was a huge challenge motivating the team and then working to help take care of them uh, afterwards. Uh, it was compounded by the fact that in 2010, the Constellation program that was uh, to replace the space shuttle had been canceled. So there was no real significant work for uh, KSC of the magnitude of the shuttle program after that. But with uh, the advent of the space launch system, SLS and uh, Orion, uh, with a future in exploration, uh, still maintaining the space station, which was all the cargo and stuff got processed at KSC, we started building back. How could we enable the resources that we have to support commercial operations. And uh, that was the path forward. The commercial crew program started with commercial cargo. So we transitioned KSC from this pure government spaceport to a multi-user spaceport, commercial and government uh, going forward. And that's where we put our effort because all the facilities at KSC were pretty much paid for by the, by the shuttle program. So we had to find, you know, we couldn't afford it all. So what, what do we need to keep to make SLS successful for our exploration program? And I can talk more about Artemis and going back to the moon. That's absolutely an amazing program we have right now. I'd like to talk about that. But from the transition point of view, it was what do we have that would enable commercial operations? And if it, if it was needed for SLS, we kept it. If it was uh, able to be used by commercial space, we kept it. If it didn't support either of those, uh, we uh, raised it and got it off our books uh, to be more affordable. But it was a, an amazing transition by the team, working with the community and working together, iterating this over time to have this vision of what we could be and then make it happen. And by the way, just a personal question, do the blueprints for the space shuttle, do they still exist somewhere? Oh, I'm sure they do. You know, I, I Absolutely. Uh, and if you haven't had a chance to actually go see the, the space shuttle out at Udbar Hazy. Oh, I have. Is the I have. Yeah. Record up there. Uh, at the Kennedy Space Center, we have the space shuttle Atlantis, the space shuttle Endeavors out at the California Science Center. They're getting ready for a brand new display of it out there that's going to be amazing. Up on uh, uh, the Intrepid up in New York, you can see Enterprise, the approach Atlantis vehicle. 
And at, uh, at Space Center Houston, uh, at the Johnson Space Center, they have a, uh, a life-size mock-up of the space shuttle mounted on top of the uh, 747 carrier aircraft, uh, shuttle carrier aircraft. It's uh, amazing to see also. And you mentioned, of course, the switch over to the commercial space port operation. And, of course, the Artemis and the next generation of moon landing is a integration effort of a number of contractors and commercial capabilities. But the architecture of that program is somewhat more complex than the Apollo program because you have, you know, space-based refueling and so forth and using the moon in a more permanent way, perhaps as a launch pad to Mars and all of this, a lot of moving parts. And they're not all under NASA's roof. They're all under contractor roofs coordinated by NASA. And so it's late. I think probably 2025 for that launch of Artemis sounds ambitious. What's your sense of how this will all come together eventually? Well, first off, the Artemis program, Artemis is the uh, twin sister of uh, Apollo that we went to the moon with the first time in Greek mythology. And I think it's uh, very appropriate as we intend to put the first uh, woman in person of color on the moon. The, the Artemis program, we're going back to the moon in a sustainable way, not a two or three day camping trip like we did with, uh, with Apollo. And what we really wanna do is learn how to operate away from our home planet in a sustainable way in preparations for going on to Mars. Uh, we're going to the South Pole of the moon because there's water ice there. We believe tons of it and water is, uh, hydrogen fuel and oxygen to breathe so that we can utilize lunar resources for our longer stays there. We want to go for weeks at a time. But I, how we are going, it's not purely, first off, every space vehicle that's been built has been built by a contractor. It's just how do we procure them? And we're using Space Act agreements. We're using other vehicles in order to uh, procure the vehicles that we need. We're doing it in partnership with our commercial partners so that they can actually use those vehicles for commercial access to the moon also. So it's a joint international commercial industry government partnership, a consortium that's taking us back in a sustainable way that we can really make this happen and keep it to continue preparing ourselves for going on to Mars. So it, it yes, it's a huge challenge. And uh, I, I don't believe we'll see how things work out here, but uh, 25 is going to be uh, a challenge because we have to have a lander and, and competition is good. You know, we have SpaceX working on their Starship with their uh, super heavy launch vehicle. They've flown their second test flight out of Boca Chica down in Texas. But we have also contracted with uh, Blue and their team to build a, a second lander to have dissimilar redundancy and competition. It creates uh, innovation. It also uh, helps keeps costs down, but it, uh, it, it improves our industrial base as a whole. And thinking about what you mentioned about sustainability and sustained activity by people on the moon for longer periods of time than, as you put it, the camping trip of a couple days maybe or a few hours, then there becomes, you tell me, not just an engineering and a life sustainment engineering challenge here to keep people alive and comfortable, but what about the psychological aspect of someone, you know, waking up in the morning and, you know, by golly, you, you can't run over to Sheets, you know, to get coffee <laughs> and a hot dog. And so maybe we need a Sheets in space someday. But what about that part of it for the people that will actually participate in this? Actually, you know, the coffee is pretty darn good in space. Uh, I was <laughs> I, I had some awesome instant Kona coffee. I, I'm a huge coffee guy. And uh, Kona coffee with a little bit of cream and sugar, and I normally drink my coffee black, 
but it called for eight ounces of water. And I, I'd put four ounces of hot water in it, mix it up and had this like mini cappuccino when I was on orbit in, in the morning. So yeah, I'm a coffee. Who knew? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I think that's, that's the goal is how do we do this? How do we get all the supplies there and do it in a sustainable way uh, from a psychological point of view? You know, a short trip to the moon is different from a, a trip to Mars. I think that's the challenge is when we go on to Mars with current propulsion technology, you're talking a year and a half to two years for a, a Martian mission. Uh, six to eight months to get there, six to eight months on Mars for the planets to align for another six to eight month trip home. Studies I've seen say we have to pre-stage like 20 metric tons of supplies and equipment on Mars before humans can even go there if we want to keep them alive and, and sustain them. So these are huge challenges, the reliability of the systems. And this is where the space station has just been outstanding. It is a superb engineering testbed to develop and prove the systems that we need uh, in a microgravity environment for crews as we uh, have these extended duration missions uh, you know, going forward. Not to mention the science and learning how the human system behaves for extended periods in a microgravity environment, we have a lot of challenges that we have to conquer. Edema of the optic nerve, swelling of the optic nerve that affects vision. Maybe it's swelling of the brain is, is what's causing this. You know, uh, bone loss, uh, you shed calcium in space. There are so many things that we need to understand better for long duration spaceflight. And one of the huge challenges is gonna be the uh, radiation environment as we leave uh, low earth orbit and the protection of the earth's magnetosphere. And what are your personal plans after December 31st when you leave NASA? I can't believe you're just going to put your feet up and, and, and swing on a chair somewhere. So uh, you're, you're probably right, but uh, I've made a commitment to myself for six months. I'm not going to do anything except, uh, you know, uh, spend time with family. And, uh, and I, I plan to uh, climb Machu Picchu sometime next year and uh, probably take another cycling trip. I've cycled uh, across Spain and down Italy and in Andorra on the French-Spanish border. I, I need another, maybe in Eastern Europe or somewhere, but uh, I'm, I'm gonna find some way to stay engaged in, uh, in space, but I'm, it's not gonna be a full-time job. I wanna be able to have time with my grandchildren while I'm still fit enough to keep up with them. Yeah, so all that time in space and dealing with space then really helps you appreciate the Earth sounds like. Oh, absolutely. This, the Earth is truly a, a beautiful blue jewel of the planet. And what NASA does, it's really important. All the vehicles that we have orbiting the Earth, all the satellites that monitor our Earth's environment that understand the Earth's system and how it's changing so that we can accurately model it so that we know how to uh, protect it. That is so important. And I just, uh, you know, people talk about living on the moon or living on Mars, you know, Mars is an awful place to live. It's got a low atmosphere. It's got methane atmosphere. Earth is, is just beautiful, you know, and uh, there's no place else nearby that's anything like it. So we need to take care of it. Bob Cabana is Associate Administrator of NASA, retiring at the end of December. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Tom. It's been a real pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people and in order to do that we really value our people we want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them so well-being is important psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard so I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of 
our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.